Turn with me to the book of Nehemiah. We come this morning to Nehemiah chapter 2. Our text will be verses 11 through 20. At this point in the story, we've already just kind of give you a review of where we've been, and just to bring us up to speed here, that Nehemiah has heard about the crisis of Jerusalem. He's crossed the major hurdle, and that is being able to go to the king, make his appeal to be of some assistance. In fact, his desire to go to Jerusalem and to minister there. So as we come to our text today, we actually come to the place where Nehemiah is there. He's come to the city of Jerusalem. So now we begin the first-hand observation. It's no longer by the hearing of the ear. He's there and he sees with his own eyes. He walks through the community and some of his journeys even done at night to just evaluate the nature of the situation, the, the nature of the work to be done. You know, and many times when we see things firsthand, we realize that, boy, this is much more serious than I had really imagined. And sometimes it's difficult when we go to such situations to to stay on task. Maybe we get to a situation that we've stepped into and say, well, I've bitten off here more than I can chew. I've stepped into a situation here that's that's not a situation that I've that I'm equipped for. And so the question here from Nehemiah is once he begins to see, once he begins to evaluate from again a first hand perspective as he sees things himself, can he stay on task? Now, how does he keep from being overwhelmed at what he sees as the work before him? So let's go to our scriptures here, reading in Nehemiah chapter 2, beginning with verse 11. So I came to Jerusalem and was there three days. And I arose in the night, I and a few men with me. I did not tell anyone what my God was putting into my mind to do for Jerusalem. And there was no animal with me except the animal on which I was riding. And that seems to be just that it could be done very quietly without drawing a lot of attention to them to the group. So I went out at night by the valley gate in the direction of the dragon's well and on to the refuse gate, inspecting the walls of Jerusalem which were broken down and its gates which were consumed by fire. Then I passed on to the fountain gate and the king's pool But there was no place for my mount to pass. So I went up at night by the ravine and inspected the wall. Then I entered the valley gate again and returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I had done. Nor had I as yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, or the rest who did the work. Then I said to them, You see the bad situation we are in? That Jerusalem is desolate and its gates burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer be a reproach. And I told them how the hand of my God had been favorable to me. And also how the king's words which he had spoken to me. Then they said, let us arise and build. So they put their hands to the good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official and Geshem the Arab heard it, got a new one in the mix here, (laughs) 
They mocked us and despised us and said, What is this thing you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Because there had been, in fact, an edict issued that there was to be no more work done in the city of Jerusalem. We read back in the book of Ezra. So he answered them and said to them, The God of heaven will give us success. Therefore, we his servants will arise and build. But you have no portion, right, or memorial in Jerusalem. And we make those occasional treks, at least in our family. <laughs> I do it now more so than before. To the, uh, to the eye doctor for the occasional new prescription of glasses. The last time I went, I finally buckled in and got my bifocals, which I probably should have gotten sooner, but decided not to. If you go, if you go to these eye doctors, you know if you've been. I see all these glasses out here. Uh, you know what they do. They run you through these series of lenses, and you look through some lenses, and sometimes something's blurry. They click at one. Is this better or worse? Is click it again. Is this better or worse? And you answer, well, it's worse. Then sometimes they have these little lines going across. Are the ones that are vertical, are they darker? Are the ones vertical? <laughs> are the ones that are vertical darker? Are the ones that are horizontal darker? You know, so you go through. And, but the intent is there to find just the right lens, just the right prescription so that it fits the bill of our need. And there's that one proper prescription, that one proper lens that's there that's appropriate for our eyes. You know, there's an appropriate lens for the believer to view all of life. And I think we see Nehemiah as one who wore this spiritual lens, the lens through which he interpreted, the lens which, which, through which he always saw life. The lens is one that always sees God at work. To see God's place and what is going on in the circumstances of our lives. Because God is God, after all. And God does encompass all of life. The Scripture reveals to us that He is one who is sovereign. He is one who providentially rules over all of creation. And so we must consider all of life through Him. Through God, a God-centered lens. So how do we how do we do that? Well, how does Nehemiah do that in our text here? Well, first of all, we see that God that Nehemiah communicates his vision of life through this God-centered lens and his expressing of God's providences. Nehemiah is one, as we read the accounts here, he's retelling the events. He's looking back. He's thinking back. Telling about what has happened. Again, this has been referred to as Nehemiah's memoirs. We also know that Nehemiah is a person who is very brief in his details. There's not a lot here. You know, that's the reason we read so much. Even what we've read and we kind of have questions. Well, what's he communicating here? Uh, some things are just not clear. He leaves some things to the imagination. He doesn't communicate any more detail than necessary. He seems to be a man that's content with using an economy of words. So Nehemiah, as he retells his activities, and he retells to us and to those who will read of his strategy, he could very simply lead to that. This is what happened. This is what took place. But we see that Nehemiah, in this economy of words, chooses to place all this 
in a context. How does he want us to see it? When he gets down to the economy of words, what he considers to be the essentials of the details to communicate, what does he say? Verse 12. I arose in the night, I and a few men with me. I did not tell anyone what. Here's his context. What my God was putting into my mind. What my God was putting into my mind to do for Jerusalem. See, Nehemiah, as we've already mentioned before, Nehemiah is a man who is determined to communicate that this is more than just a story about Nehemiah. This is more than just a story about a man. This is a rehearsing and a reviewing and a recounting of the work of God. God is the one who has been ministering here. It is God who has moved upon and in behalf of Nehemiah's heart here. He's already made reference, obviously, by this prayer that he gives in chapter 1. Chapter 1, verses 4 and following. We looked at that prayer just a few Sundays ago. It is God who must intervene on behalf of Jerusalem. So he goes and he prays, I beseech you, O Lord God of heaven. I can't, I can't address this matter without prayer. I cannot attack the issues. I cannot begin to see any remedy for the situation of Jerusalem without knowing that I must go to God and plead for His mercy. Lord God, You are the one who must work here. So I come and I beseech You, O Lord God of heaven, You intervene on behalf of Jerusalem. This isn't something that needs to be stirred up in my heart if there's no vision of God. A vision that does not first originate from God. So He goes in prayer. And we saw last week in chapter 2, in verse 2, verse 8, when he went before the king and he had his request granted. What's the very last part he says in verse 8? And the king granted them to me, granted the, the letters for safe passage and also the request for the materials to rebuild the walls and the gates. The king granted them to me. Why? Because the good hand of my God was on me. Nehemiah is a man, he, he sees that God's got to be at the very heart of this. And he recognizes, looking back, God was doing this. I prayed to God and God answered. I prayed to God that He would grant me compassion before the king. And God did so. I was received, I was granted favor before the king. And the king gave my request. Why? Because the good hand of God was upon me. So that when Nehemiah says in verse 12 of our text here today, that God was putting into my mind. What do we see here? We simply see a consistency of His view of life. What's God doing? We need to see the hand of God and to trust that God is the one who, who puts these things into our minds. See, Nehemiah, he cannot recollect his life without declaring the obvious. That God was working here. God is involved in the circumstances and God's involved in this manner. He could have just... Matter of fact, he said these things. But he can't do it. He can't do it. He must speak of God. These are matters that seem to be very practical. Very natural. Yet to Nehemiah, they must be interpreted. They must be rightfully seen through these God-centered lens. 
We see the God-given wisdom that uh, Nehemiah demonstrates. What does he do in our text as we've seen? It says in verse verse 13, I went out at night. Why does he go out at night? It seems to be that he knew, of course, about his enemies. They showed their heads pretty quick. He went out at night apparently to be unobserved by the enemy. So there would be no suspicion to begin to arise from from the enemies. And they began to act. He wants to be able to take the first step of action. But it's the wisdom of God. He speaks to no one of his plan. You know, who are the who do you trust here? <laughs> so he takes those trusted few because more than likely, and we find out later, in fact, that there are those from within the ranks that that cannot be trusted. So he, he demonstrates great wisdom. He evaluates the wall. He goes there to get his first hand knowledge of the damage. And likewise, to go and to establish something of a strategy so that when he goes to the people, he says, this is what we're going to do and this is how we're going to do it. Great wisdom demonstrated here. And he speaks at the appropriate time. Once he has developed a specific plan of action where efficiency and success is assured. Again, we could say that this is just a a wise man at work here. But this is a man that says very simply, this was God putting these things into my mind. He chooses to, when he's recounting to us the events of life, expressing God's providences. This is God's work. God has placed this into my mind, into my heart. If you're a fan of the uh, the Andy Griffith shows, I've watched a number of those over the years. You know, Barney Fife is the, you know, the great bumbler and fumbler through so many of those television shows. But there are many times when he has gone and he's, you know, messed up something, made a fool of himself or whatever the case, but he's made to look heroic by something that Andy does, Andy Taylor, on his behalf. And so it makes it come out like though Barney may have known something from the beginning, a great plan, a great strategy, when in fact, you know, he's at a total loss, but Andy has come and he's and he's intervened. And so... Barney saves face. But, consistent with the character he's portraying, he's always ready, always quick to take credit. You know, Andy will make it look good. And, you know, then Barney says, well, you know, I kind of knew it all along. When they're in reality, he's, he was oblivious and helpless. But there's been a great intervention. You know, contrast that character with the character that we see here in Nehemiah. Now, here's a man that could take great credit for a brilliant strategy and efficiency. But he interprets any of the good things that come within into his mind and those good things that he does, he interprets any good thing of himself to God being at work in him. I think it's certainly a demonstration of the need of the church today, is it not, that the people of God be refitted with God-centered lenses. Let the church and the people of God be those who are quick to recognize the goodness of God, quick to recognize the hand of God, quick to recognize the the providential hand of God in the circumstance of our life, and that we can say as we go through life, and if any good is accomplished, to simply say that it was God who put these things in my heart, that it was God working in and through me. As Paul tells the church at Philippi, that it is God who works in you both to will... The desire is there because of the Spirit of God. And to do the ability 
is there because of the Spirit of God within us. It's God who works in you both to will and to do His good pleasure. Quit to acknowledge the hand of God uh, to stop looking for opportunities to pat ourselves on the back. To stop doing things for God and doing things by God, by His strength, by His grace, His power. You know, Nehemiah was a man, a man which we've seen of great prayer. And a man, as he would go to God in prayer so much of the time, what did he do? I think he went before the throne of grace and, and he had his mind filled with what seems to be the strategy and the intent, the plan that God had for him. And you know what we do so much of the time in our day? We develop our plans first and then we go to God in prayer and ask Him to bless it. It's backwards. We need to go to God. We need to be a people of prayer. And it, it's not so much that we can look at things as they take place and say, well I, well, I know this is of God because I had some deep unction within me. But simply to recognize that these things are good. These things are right. And to be able to look back on our lives and to look at some of those critical decisions that we've made in life and to say, truly it was God that put these things into, our, into my mind. Those are the things that, that help us when we get to the crises of life. Uh, there have been some decisions that I've made in my life. And as Beth and I, we've, we've prayed about issues together. And we, we always ask God to unite our hearts, especially in critical decisions. We ask God to unite our hearts so that we are in absolute agreement before we make any major decisions. And most of those have been for us, been involved moving somewhere, you know, leaving Middle Tennessee, going to seminary in St. Louis, uh, going to a church to minister from there, going and coming here. And I'll be the first to say that I'm not the most diligent man in prayer, but I'm learning more and more of that. But it's important as you look back on those crises and those situations in life to be able to say that at the hand of God, God has put these things, put these things within our hearts. That we're where we are, we're doing what we're doing, because we can, we can say God has done this. We haven't gone to God with our plan and said, Lord, we want to do this, would you bless it? It was God and we said, Lord, this is the opportunity you've given to us. We believe it's of you. We have the desire to, to do this. And if it's not, you don't have to stop it. So do so. How important it is that we not merely learn, listen carefully, that we not merely learn God speak. That we not merely learn to say, well, God has guided me. God has led. I believe this is what God had me to do. But we be convinced in our heart because we've been a people of prayer. We've made matters, issues, things that we pray fervently about. And that we can say, we believe, I believe that this is what God was putting into my mind, putting into my heart. We don't need to try to make things pretty. If it's our plan, and if it's our plan, don't tie God into it. That's the reason I spend so much time here on a weekly basis praying for the ministry of Cornerstone Chapel. That's why I spend time on a weekly basis praying for you by name as members of this congregation. I'm not interested in my plan for Cornerstone Chapel. Now, I could develop one. But I want to know the mind of the Lord. So that I can say before you and I can even say before God, Lord, I believe this is the vision that you have placed upon my heart and my mind. And if it's so, that you'll implant that vision in the hearts and the lives of your people and we'll go with it. You know, we're not looking for 
church growth strategy just to get the people in. We want healthy growth. We want growth of those who know and love the Lord Jesus Christ. Whether they be believers for many years or whether they be new converts. But they be converts. Those who know Christ. But to be able to look back and say, this is what God has done. You know, the problem that we face so much is that we are, we've become so accustomed to acting independent of God rather than in dependence upon God. So we just don't know how to recognize what God puts into our hearts and into our minds. It takes time. It takes prayer. And we ask God to unite our hearts with His design, with His purposes, and with His plan so that we can say, Lord, sink or swim, we believe, we believe that You've put these things into our hearts and into our minds as as a congregation here. So when Nehemiah, he speaks of the events of life, as he sees life through this God-centered lens, expresses it in terms of God's providence is God has done these things. But also he sees it as an we see it here in the life of Nehemiah in edifying God's people. See the expected result of seeing God at work in one's personal life, which is what Nehemiah communicates. That God's done these things. God's planted these things within his heart, within his mind. The expected result and consequence of that is it provides the platform for ministry to other believers. So note Nehemiah's approach here. Look down in verse 17. I said to them, to those people of Jerusalem, you see the bad situation we're in, that Jerusalem is desolate and its gates burned by fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer be a reproach. That's enough said, is it not? (laughs) No. Look at verse 18. And I told them what? I told them how the hand of my God had been favorable to me. And also about the king's words, which he had spoken to me. Then they said, let's arise and build. What do we see here? Well, again, he begins, you see the bad situation. <laughs> yeah, we've been looking at this for a long time, brother. We see it. So you see the bad situation. Let's rebuild this wall. Let's get busy. Let's remedy this. But what's the motivation for that? What's the, what's the motivation and the encouragement to action here? He states in verse, eight, verse 18, it is this. I told them how the hand of my God had been favorable to me. You want to motivate the people of God. Here it is. You just encourage them in the ways of God. As an opportunity to edify God's people. It's not a matter of, you know, our place is a mess. We can do better. Let's clean it up. But he testifies to the people here. Let me tell you what God's done. Let me tell you the miraculous interventions of God that has brought me, Nehemiah, to this place. God has granted me favor. Not for myself. Not for coming here and making a name for myself, but for His namesake, for His glory, and the rebuilding and the protection of His city. That the reproach upon the city, which is ultimately a reproach upon the name of God, be removed. So he goes and he speaks to the people and he communicates to them 
God's been favorable to me. Give the people, gives the people here a Godward perspective. So he directs the people here to consider God at work on behalf of Jerusalem. His blessing. His provision. His protection. Nehemiah is just very simply the instrument. God's instrument of choice. But the people don't need here a dose of assurance that this work is is simply about a charismatic personality coming in who can motivate people to do things. That's not Nehemiah's approach here. That's not the issue here. That a man's coming with this charismatic personality and this man comes with strong leadership skills. No, they don't need that. They need the assurance that God's in this. This is about God. He is working. And He is moving. You know, involvement in a true ministry of edification, which is what we're called to in the body of Christ, to edify one another. To The word edify means to build one another up. To do what we can to encourage one another in the Christian faith. To do such is to do all that we can to direct the focus of our brothers and sisters in Christ Godward. I don't want your focus to become ever in this ministry manward. I want it to be Godward. If anything is going to happen here, it's going to be God. And so Nehemiah, he comes in and he directs their thoughts Godward. You know, has God done great things in your life? Tell it. Yeah, but let the focus be on God. You know, let the hero be God. Not, not let it be how great I was in my, my demonstration of faith. No, I don't have any of that. No, my failures and my faults. Here, in spite of all that, God has done great and mighty things. Let Him be the focus. We don't want people to think that usefulness to God is dependent upon mere personalities or particular gifts. Now granted, God uses different gifts. He gives us different gifts. But they are different. You know, I may have one gift that's important within this congregation, but the gift that you have is important within this congregation as well. It's not the same, but it is God's gift. It's God's gift to the body. God's gift one to another. So that we use those things to direct hearts and minds Godward. So, when Nehemiah... This Godward lens that he sees all of life through. He sees it as the opportunity to edify the saints. To direct their thoughts Godward, upward, not manward, not into himself. Finally, we see it in the encountering of God's enemies. How do we talk? How different does our speech become when we are speaking with those who are outside the kingdom of God? Now, to some degree, we're compelled to speak differently because we know we do get in circles and get in habits of particular vocabulary and that type of thing. I understand that. But we notice here in Nehemiah, when, verse 19, when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem, they arise and they come and they begin to mock. 
there's this great gathering. Nehemiah's gathered the people and said, let's go and let's rebuild the wall. And so the, the people said, let's arise and build. They're motivated to do so. Why? Because God's at work here. They've been directed to see God's hand at work here. And so what happened? They put their hands to the good work. And then here come the enemies. And they come and they begin to mock them. What a waste of time. You're never going to get this done. And began to despise, despise us, to look down upon them. What are you doing? You're going to rebel against the king? I mean, after all, the edict has been passed. There's been no more of this some years earlier. How does Nehemiah respond? I answered them and I said to them, the God of heaven will give us success. See, Nehemiah speaks to these men as he would all men. He speaks of God. He speaks of God. His speech is still reflective of his confidence in God. In other words, Nehemiah doesn't he doesn't go secular in his speech, in his conversation with the pagans. He still uses the terminology of God's kingdom, speaks of God. The issue here for the enemies for Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem. The issue is they're not dealing with just Nehemiah and a man who, again, would come with great leadership skills. The issue is the God of heaven has granted them favor. The God of heaven has given directions. He has placed these things upon his heart. Dear enemies of God, the dear enemies of those who do the work of God, the God of heaven, the God of heaven will give us success. The clear testimony to these scoffers is the hope of the people of God and the God of heaven. You know, I wonder, as I thought about this, how quickly the God-filled speech and conversation of Sunday becomes so godless on Monday. I don't mean vile and corrupt and those types of things. I hope we're not dealing on that level of issues. But what I mean is, you just don't hear much of God. Much of the Lord. Much of Christ. Yeah, you want to get somebody riled, just start talking about Jesus Christ. And it becomes more than just a generic belief in God, but it's expressed my faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, we're quickly intimidated, aren't we? We're quickly quickly intimidated by a secular world. And we go into the world many times on Monday mornings in a defensive mindset. I just want to hold on to what I've got. <laughs> if, I can, if I can shell up and you know, hunker down and take what comes. And we go in defensive mindset. When in reality, I think it's non-believers. It should be those that are intimidated by believers. They should be intimidated by the by the words of truth that we can speak. They should be intimidated by the by the life of faith that we demonstrate before them because criticized as they must, they cannot deny the reality of it if they're seeing it and if they're hearing it. Again, not that we want people to think so well of us. We want them to think well of our God and of our Christ. 
and the opportunities that we have to speak of God. Now, I'm not talking about going out there and just becoming obnoxious, but just very simply in a very, what should be a very natural way to say, you know, the Lord's been good to us. The Lord has blessed us. You know, we're quick to do that on Sunday here amongst amongst the saints. Well, Nehemiah takes the same conversation to the pagans. God of heaven will give us success. You know, when Paul is on the ship, which if you read to the book of Acts, when they're being storm-tossed around, even for a number of weeks, how does he speak to the pagans? God has told me this. This is what's going to happen. But to have our tongues loosened in the encountering of God's enemies, we don't have to go to the secular mindset and secular speech. To speak of God and His goodness, I mean, we're just communicating truth for the glory of God. And maybe somewhere in all that, there'll be someone who will think, you know, you speak as though God is someone... You know. Whoa. We do. And let that to be a challenge so that we, as we see all of life, you know, Nehemiah, as you come to these words, I don't get the impression here that Nehemiah loses. You know, here is a wonderful evangelistic opportunity here. I will speak of the God of heaven. He's just being Nehemiah. He's a man of God. He cannot help but speak of God, whether it be in recounting the, the providences of God, or whether it be in the ministry of edification of the saints of God to direct their thoughts to others, or even to the enemies of God. He just can't help it. He's full of God. So whether it be friend or foe, God speak. It's not forced. It's not made up. It's just simply a heart overflowing because he knows God and he walks with God. May God help us. May God help us that we can look and we can say that God is putting these things in my mind. I can rest assured of those things because they are matters of deep prayer. May God help us to direct the thoughts of our brothers and sisters in Christ and edifying one another to direct their thoughts Godward, upward. And then even in the encounter of our enemies, that we would have some holy boldness about us and say the things just very simply that we want to say and rather than thinking, well, I'd like to say this, but I better not. I might be pigeonholed as one of those fanatical right-wing fundamentalists or something. <laughs> to simply have a life that's consumed with, with God. Because God is there. God is in all of life. He encompasses all of life. So that we must consider all of life through Him. And if we fail to do so, we've missed it. We've misunderstood, we've misinterpreted, and we've miscommunicated. If we cannot speak of the things of God. May God give us such a God-filled vision. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your work of grace in the heart of Your servant, Nehemiah. Not a great man, 
but the servant of a great God. And that's true greatness, O Lord, to be those who see our emptiness and our barrenness and our need of You. Thank You, O Lord, for the for the model that it is to us. To simply see the hand of God at work in our own hearts and our lives because we've spent time with You and we can say that God's done this because we have asked and we've cried out and we've depended upon You, Lord. And if You've not done anything, then that we are in a hopeless situation. But also to to edify one another. To encourage one another to look unto God, to see the hand of God, to see Your favor towards Your children that's given through Your Son, the Lord Jesus. And in a world that that's in contradiction to You, to be able to speak boldly, not to force those things which are unnatural, that just that it simply be a natural part of our life and our vocabulary and our speech that we cannot help but speak of God, the God who is in heaven. Well, I pray for these here who are in difficult places, places where to speak of God at work in their lives is a is a challenge. I ask you to give boldness to open our mouths. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.